The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Corporate Drinker, a punk rock HR production. In each episode, Corporate Drinker explores the intricate ties between work culture and alcohol. Now, there's no judgment here. The podcast tells stories of regular people like you and me who may have complicated relationships with drinking. I'll talk to leadership gurus, therapists, addiction specialists, and even HR and marketing professionals who have hot takes on how and why alcohol and work have become so interconnected. And of course, I'll speak to brilliant people with big ideas on cultivating genuine cultures of inclusion and belonging so leaders and employees can enhance their work environment and reduce unnecessary conflict with or without alcohol. When you produce a podcast called Corporate Drinker, eventually you call the lawyer. So that's what we've done for today's show. My guest today is Kate Bischoff, lawyer extraordinaire and Minneapolis-based employment attorney. She's on the show today to talk about all things work and drinking, and I think this conversation is going to surprise you. So if you like two middle-aged ladies from the Midwest talking about alcohol, well, sit back and enjoy this absolutely delightful conversation with the one, the only, Kate Bischoff. Hey, Kate, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm so pleased to talk to you about work drinking. Uh, You know a thing or two about that. So can you tell me if you're pro or con work drinking? Well, that takes a very black and white kind of perception of it. And I live in the gray as an employment attorney. And so I'm going to say, maybe I'm okay with it. Wait, aren't you the kind of employment attorney who doesn't like to say, well, it depends. I've heard you say that. (laughs) I know. I don't like to say, well, it depends. Um, But I, I, in the past, I've had a compliance course where I give students a big, awful employer who's not doing a very good job, trying real hard, start up, like really doing everything they can to try to build the kind of workplace that they want. So they have a kegerator in it. And my students, like one of the first things they want to do when there's no employee handbook, there's no guidance, there's no recruiting strategy, none of that. The first thing they want to do is get rid of the kegerator. And I'm like, no, 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 no. If you do that, you lose all credibility as the HR person because you're already taking away something that they value as a part of their culture. So that needs to be lower on your priority list. There are much bigger issues at afoot here. So let's move off of that. So yeah, well, let's let's talk about what an optimal organization might look like, because I, number one, I don't think an optimal organization exists, but there is this lofty idea out there that we all show up to work and we don't need alcohol to have fun. And I don't know, I need alcohol to have fun at work. So I don't know about you. <laughs> I don't think I need alcohol necessarily to have fun at work. But I do need to have a work environment in which I am comfortable enough hanging out with my work people, right? Not everybody is in that position. And when you're comfortable with the people that you work with, you're more likely to share concerns, to bring up issues as they come along, 
which is this concept of psychological safety. So if one of those ways to get that camaraderie built is we have a drink Thursday afternoons at four o'clock to shoot the shit about what happened this week, I'm going to be okay with that, provided we understand the risks. And we've taken that into account before we even get there. So we've talked about optimal organizations rooted in psychological safety. And when you have psychological safety, you can invite alcohol into that environment. And there are guardrails, there are rules. It's part of, at least it's considered within the diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging strategy, right? But, you know, a lot of people think a suboptimal organization is like uh, the tech bros, right? Like uh, something in Silicon Valley, where in order to get everybody happy, they just choke down a lot of alcohol, but that's not just Silicon Valley, right? That could be insurance, that could be finance, that could be an HVAC company. So I wonder in a suboptimal organization that has alcohol and has problems, what do they have in common? They have several things in common. One, they use alcohol as a crutch, as the salve that creates this environment of psychological safety that smooths over their primary means of managing, which is through fear and command and control. The other thing that is very common to them is that they respect hierarchy to their detriment in that everyone holds a position of power, whether it's no power or lots of power. And when they use alcohol to their the organization's detriment, they're using it to the particular benefit of the person in power. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. That's really nuanced, though, that discussion around power. I hadn't really thought about how alcohol can reinforce some of the power dynamics and the power constructs and actually go against everything we talk about with psychological safety and inclusion and belonging, man, it can stab all of that right in the heart. <laughs> yes, it can. And often when we see some sort of problematic behavior, particularly around alcohol, when it comes to things like harassment, we're seeing that use of power that is amplified through alcohol, right? Most sexual assaults, in fact, come from a place of power, right? And if you have two people who are drinking, their egos might be larger when they have more power or feeling even more powerless in the face of someone who has that kind of power over them. Hmm, really interesting. You know, as you were describing that, I'm thinking that these are societal issues, right? These are issues that are bigger than corporate America, right? Or a global corporation. And yet we look to companies to solve some of these problems through the good old fashioned handbook. So how realistic is that? I mean, that, there's a lot of tension there. And while I don't think corporations have no responsibility, I don't, I don't like the conversation these days around like well-being and trust and psychological safety being in the purview of the corporation when I believe we're all self-leaders, right? We're all peer leaders. So can you help me tease that out? <laughs> sure. I agree with you that this is a much bigger societal issue. Corporations have a place in it in that their job is to not do any more harm than what already exists, right? Like they shouldn't be greasing the wheels to allow this happen and greasing it through rum and vodka, right? Like it's, that's not how we should do this. They need to understand that we need to keep our people safe, the people, our people come in contact safe to a certain degree, right? Like I'm not going to be responsible for when the person leaves my workplace, right? But I need to make sure that if they're drunk, they're not just leaving and driving off in their car, right? Like that has some kind of relationship to it. But really, 
we all have a place and corporations have a place in that too. So you brought up the topic of sexual assault, and this is something that everybody thinks happens at other companies and doesn't happen within their organizations, right? You know, it's it's on TV, it's at big companies, it's not at a small family company like I run. Can you talk a little bit about maybe... I have two questions. Like, is there a typical profile of a company that has more sexual assaults than others or reported sexual assaults? And maybe what what are we missing when we talk about sexual assault in the workplace? So the EEOC did a long-term study about what some of the common factors are in sexual harassment. And some of those things are uh, the employee base. It doesn't necessarily have a high level of education. I don't think that's necessarily true. A lot of my investigations have involved very high-level individuals with lots of education. Uh, Another thing is, is whether in the service industry, particularly when they have customers at the bar, grab in a server, right? Okay, so sure, the restaurant industry and hospitality industry overall has a bigger risk. So there are some factors out there. Given that I've done workplace investigations or been in a corporate HR position like for since 2002, so coming up on 21 years, there is no standard profile. I've seen harassment and assault happen in professional services. I've seen it in hospitality. I have seen it in manufacturing. I've seen it in med device. Like I've seen it everywhere. There are no secret common denominators. I think there are secret common denominators with managers who engage in this kind of behavior. And that is around ego and power and sometimes feeling powerlessness and needing to feel that need of power, but that's not easily identifiable by corporation. And sometimes corporations can't even figure that out. So it's not as easy to identify by company. It's much more nuanced within an organization. You know, when I phrased the question, I phrased it around sexual assault, but you started with harassment. So I wonder if there's an assumption that can be made, a correlation even, that if you have a high rate of sexual harassment in your company or in your industry, you are more than likely to have individuals who have suffered from assaults and, I mean, total terrible situations, right? Can we can we assume that? Yeah. Yeah. So harassment, in my experience, and I think most of the studies show, that there's a, this beautiful graduation of curve to harassment. It starts off with, hey, babe, then the dirty joke, then the comments about your appearance, and then now we got a touching. And oftentimes, the target of the harassment sees the, hey, babe, and goes, oh, no big deal. Sees the dirty joke, oh, no big deal. Sees, oh, I got touched. Well, I blew off those other things, so why would I report it? And so now, like, it got really big really fast. And those organizations that recognize the hey, babe, and the dirty joke as we can't tolerate that, not a zero tolerance. I don't want to say everybody gets fired for saying hey, babe, once. But I do see that you can't do that. If you do that, this we're going to have a talking to with you. That stops the pattern of harassment. And it's when an organization is willing to step in, even at the quote unquote low level of behavior, that we see the stop to assault. When we don't, or there's the fear of if I go tell the organization this happened, they're not going to do anything about it, and then I'm just going to get blowback from my manager, then we're setting it up for the worst thing to happen. Maybe not to that particular individual, but it's going to happen because we don't have anything to stop it. So I'd like to just talk about an optimal policy, because again, a lot of people think that an optimal policy is um, no touching, no drinking, 
right? No eye contact. Uh, everybody is sexless. Everybody is nameless and faceless. We just go to work and we just talk about work, right? They would, they would be on that side. And then others are like, oh, we need, you know, a family environment. We need to be able to make jokes, right? Yeah. We need to be able to have that kegger party or that, you know, company picnic where we're serving vodka tonics in the afternoon. I don't know. But so what, if you were to design an optimal way for an organization to thrive, is there like a sweet spot and what instruction comes with that sweet spot? Well, my favorite handbook of all time, I believe is Neiman Marcus that says use good judgment at all, at all times. And that use good judgment at all times is we're going to decide what that good judgment is and we're going to model it a bit, right? I like that in that it says we're going to expect you to use your brain. We're going to expect you to be an adult. We're going to expect you to understand some social norms of being an adult and being responsible in the workplace. And we're going to hold you accountable when you're not. I don't like the 25 bullet points of all, here are all the bad things that you could do that get you disciplined. I hate those because people are so creative. They come up with the 26th, the 27th, 28th thing, and then I can do nothing about it, right? Like, oh, I, I didn't list it. So it could, can't be. Uh, I'd rather have we understand that you're an adult in this workplace. If you don't understand what that means, come talk to us. If you want even further advancement, you have to show that you are going to be an adult in the workplace. And part of that includes handling your liquor. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know, I've heard from some HR teams who have implemented, and, and finance teams, quite honestly, because this is a finance issue at some level, implemented a no reimbursement for alcohol at company events or company dinners or a limited reimbursement. They've tried to use the travel and time and attendance policy to police some of this. And they feel, at least according to their, you know, teams and their lawyers, like they've done a good job of kind of at least modifying the expectation that the company approves of you going out and opening up a bar tab. So I wonder if you've seen that being an effective strategy at all, because these HR ladies are real proud of that. You know, <laughs> uh, I don't like it because, again, if I'm not treating you like an adult, why would I expect you to act like one? Yeah, yeah, this, fair. This seems this seems very babysitting to me. I don't like people who have the noon cocktail, but I understand the happy hour ones, right? Like I understand going out with clients except happier. In fact, I, at one point, I wanted to bill myself as the employment attorney you want to have a beer with because if you're willing to have a beer with me, things are great, right? I but, still think you should do that. I think that branding <laughs> is amazing. Like don't don't walk away from that. That's so perfect. <laughs> but I also, one, don't like beer. But like I, I want that, that kind of setting. Like I want you to feel like you can be comfortable coming to talk to me about no, no matter what the issue is. The concern I do have is that if we're going to babysit every little thing you do, then I'm not giving you the respect as an adult that you should have. If I hand out drink tickets at the holiday party, that suggests that I think you guys are going to over imbibe, right? Like I think you're going to do too much. I'd rather have the we're all going to be adults. We're going to treat each other respectfully. And if you have, if I notice that you might be stuttering or stumbling, I'm going to take care of you in that role. And then we're going to have a conversation about how you showed up for work that day, even though this was after hours. 
So I want to talk about two more things. The first are conferences, which can be complex because it's like the intersection of people's own childhood trauma and relationship drama with work and travel and alcohol, right? So it all comes together. And there are plenty of people who can navigate a conference just fine. In fact, the majority of people. And I just wonder, have you advised companies on, other than being an adult, on how to handle corporate travel? You know, because it seems, based on what I've seen, that the adult lesson is heard from about maybe 70% of the workforce and the other 30% is like, woohoo, Vegas, you know? So I don't know. Um, is it is it enough? Well, there's some parts of it where we need to have a conversation about you're going to a conference and remember, you still represent us. But I, again, I don't want to be too babysittery about that. I want to be able to say, you, well, I, let me put it this way. Usually I am brought in after there's a problem, after the, right, after we played truth or dare at the bar in Vegas until 3 a.m. And we dared all the women to take their panties off and they did, right? Like I get brought in to go, you don't need me. You should have fired everybody here in the first place. Wait, right? wait, like, is that the right answer to fire fast and something uh, yeah. like that? Okay. Because a lot of people don't fire fast. I mean, that's part of the problem here. You know, we uh, we're like real slow to implement a policy and we dance around the policy. And then when something bad happens, we like dance around the issue and we bring in the lawyers, right? We can, we can fire fast, correct? Absolutely. Please fire fast. When, when it is, I dare all the women at the table to take their panties off. We fire there at that point, right then and there, right? We don't need to do an extensive six weeks investigation there. If that happened, yeah, we're done because that's not ever appropriate at 2 a.m. drunk or not, like not with your work buddies. What I would say though, is when someone is going to a conference, it's worth the manager saying, okay, I'm going to need some of what your takeaways were. And I want to know like what connections you made at the conference. I think having that conversation that doesn't include a conversation of alcohol sets the standard of we're you're going to go be professional here, whether professional is within your DEI lens or whatever, but we're going to expect you to represent the company while you're there at all times. So no, I'm expecting something back. Yeah. You know, it's interesting around the expectation because I've been talking to a lot of consultants, sales professionals, and they've all reinforced this idea that you are either at a conference, the entertainer or being entertained. And a lot of times companies are okay if you're in the role of entertainer coming back, if you report back and say, I got this many leads, I had these many conversations, right? And they won't even query any further to your point about being an adult. Well, what happened after 10 PM or what happened at the party, right? When some of the stuff that happened there is sketchy. And then on the other side, people who attended the conference who are being entertained are often leaving out the part that they expected the open bar tab, that they expected the ride to the strip club, that they expected to hit on the hottie pharmaceutical sales rep. And they did just that, right? That's part of the dance. And so I think organizations are like, as long as you made contact with the subject matter expert and you can bring home that knowledge, we're thrilled. So again, it's to your point about people not acting like adults, right? But all of this behavior tends to happen in the shadows until it doesn't. And I just know people who feel dissatisfied with saying, well, we're doing the best we can, right? You know, and that they expect corporations to do more, but I don't know what else there is to do. Well, I would expect corporations to act fast when they know that their people did wrong, right? And so if I'm the in, going to be entertained at this conference, yet I engaged in behavior that was inappropriate, 
and my corporation learns about it, they should be taking action for that. And the general synopsis out there is that HR should never talk about why someone is being let go. I think it's okay to talk in general terms about why someone's being let go so we can make an example of that person, right? If Susie goes and gets drunk at the bar and takes her top off at a SHRM conference, guess what? We can say, well, Susie didn't represent our values while she was on the bar that night. Right? Like, <laughs> right. That's your Midwestern get... pragmatism right there. I mean, that is like, <laughs> you don't have to call her a name. You don't have to like uh, describe the behavior, but you can just say she wasn't representing our values while standing at the top of the bar. Okay. <laughs> right. And then let the telephone game work its magic through the, the employee base. It'll work. I, I love promise. that. That's peer-to-peer but... leadership right there. <laughs> All right. I do. I do have one question for you because as an employment attorney, one of the things I've noticed when speaking to it, just attorneys in general about all of this, you know, the corporate drinking and being in finance and even tax attorneys talk about the effect of alcohol on their own industry in, you know, the field of the legal profession, right? So I just... I just wonder what's up with lawyers drinking so much and having substance abuse disorders because the numbers are absolutely astronomical. And I know there's all this um, attention and effort through the American Bar Association and other really important, you know, governing bodies to get to the heart of what's driving some of this maladaptive behavior. So do you have, do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, it is the legal culture. It is big firm life. It's firm life. You eat what you kill and you can never guarantee that you're going to make a lot of money or bill enough hours. And it's the expectations that come along with all of that. And to be able to handle some of that stress, we just drink ourselves into oblivion. I mean, I think we're second only to dentists and suicides, but we are right up there with drugs and alcohol. I'm not as much drugs because we don't have as access to it like doctors would because doctors have more access to drugs naturally. But yeah, we certainly have substance abuse issues. And I think it comes from our culture of the billable hour, quite frankly. Sure. So, all right. So billable hour is not just unique to the legal profession, right? It's in consulting, you know, in, in a lot of different fields. And I just, um, I just wonder how we get to the heart of culture change. I mean, I don't expect you to write a PhD thesis on this podcast about that, <laughs> mm-hmm. but if we can't change it in human resources of which I'm, you know, born and bred, right. And if we can't change it in the legal profession, how are we going to change it at the bowling alley? How are we going to change it at the Dunkin' Donuts franchise level if all of these educated, esteemed, right, uh, fields with tons of cash can't crack the code on well-being? How do we do it? Do we, wait, do we burn down the patriarchy? Is that the answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have my sticker here that says, fuck the patriarchy. I love like, it. That's right. Somewhere anywhere. But um, so I, I, I agree with you that there is no easy fix. I can tell you what worked for me. Um, because lawyers are already generally designed to be perfectionists because we don't want to lose a case for a client. We play a nuance all the time. We want it to get just perfect. I think that feeds our need to want to blow off stress and, and use alcohol to help us do that. Or, you know, in the states where it's legal, we. I think we are predetermined to do that. I think for me, what worked is to remove some of that anxiety. I went from being in big firms to now working for myself, still with a lot of anxiety. I mean, still have anxiety today, but 
after six and a half years, I can see the ebbs and flows of work. And I feel comfortable that I'm still going to be able to feed my kids and pay my mortgage and travel the way I want to. So some of that comes from maturity and understanding it. And some of it comes from recognizing when we're in an environment that we're not going to be successful in, or that we're going to turn to behaviors that don't suit us in order to be successful in it. So that's all I can say for me. Do I wish all of my clients were good at recognizing humanity in their workplaces? Yes, but testosterone and stupidity pay my mortgage. So I need a little bit of it. Yeah, just just like a scooch, though. We don't we don't need too much. <laughs> right. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about how we always pay homage to this idea of mentorship, right? You know, like, oh, we need more mentors. But in this case, in many of these professions, I mean, imagine the benefit of a young upstart individual in a big law firm listening to you, hearing from you. And I know you do do some of the mentorship work that, you know, many people just talk about, but is that, I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm doing the corporate drinker, you know, project is to normalize some of these discussions. Middle-aged people know some shit about drinking and I'm trying to communicate that. Uh, But why don't we mentor enough and why don't we talk about this subject enough? I think it's really hard to navel gaze. And that uh, that's a lot of what mentoring is about is to look back at your own experience and figure out if you made the right decisions for yourself and what could you do to get on the path that you want. And navel gazing is never something that we like to do because we don't like to sit in the discomfort of our own bad decisions. But I I have an Audi, so it's, it's right there. I can't not notice it. Um, but I do like sitting back and reflecting of, was that a decision I like to make? Or am I happy is often a question I ask myself and I ask other people to ask themselves, am I happy? And weed out what is not making me happy where I can. Well, that certainly is a great way to end our discussion on corporate drinking. I mean, the idea of being self-reflective and growing, I mean, I don't know, what's the point of life if you're not thriving and we want everybody to thrive? I think that's why we do the work we do. And I'm just so glad you were so willing to come and share your thoughts today. Thanks again for being a guest. No problem. The Corporate Drinker Podcast is a special series brought to you by Punk Rock HR. If you like what you heard, head on over to your favorite streaming platform and leave a five-star rating and a review. You can also head on over to punkrockhr.com for news, information, show notes, and all the good stuff related to Corporate Drinker. This episode was expertly produced and edited by my friends at Emerald City Productions with special help from Danny and Michael. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. We'll catch you next time on the Corporate Drinker Podcast.